to the Red Dog Road Podcast, a program for people seeking a deeper perspective on the outdoors, sports, and personal performance. And now, here is your host, Nick Pinizzato. Hello, friends, and thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. This is episode two. In today's episode, I'll have a conversation with my dear friend and hunting buddy, Mike Groman. But before we get into that, let's go over a few things that have happened since the last episode. First of all, it was Groundhog Day, and I recently wrote an article about this and my secret affinity for groundhogs in my history with Punxsutawney Phil on the Red Dog Road website, so you can check that out at reddogroad.net. Um, I grew up in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, so I do have this unique connection, and I had a little fun writing about that, and Groundhog Day has always been a little bit special for me, which might seem kind of funny to many of you. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I did not end up going deer hunting like I suggested that I might do during the last show, and a combination of things. I had some travel, some weather, and maybe even just a bit of laziness, but I did not get out there and try to fill my last tag, so I don't have a lot to talk about on that front. Uh, but I am starting to battle through the winter doldrums at this point in the year and having a little bit of cabin fever. Uh, so i got to find some way to get out there. It's a little bit too early to do any antler shed hunting, which is something I love to do, but I'm sure it'll be right around the corner. So I'll get out and do that. But and probably the most exciting thing that happened during the week was that we got a new bed in the house. And I much enjoy shopping for things to use in the outdoors, that type of thing, not buying a new bed. So when I buy things like a new bed, I always think about, man, I could have bought X number of tree stands with this or maybe a new gun. Actually, I could have bought a, a really nice gun for what we paid for the bed. But at any rate, there's a break-in period there and uh, trying to get that thing, get acclimated to it. And it's it's one of the oddest things you buy, right? Because it's obviously critical you spend most of your time in your bed ironically or a good amount of your life in your bed so you should probably spend some money on it and get something you like but at the same time it's really hard to try it out now apparently we've got 120 days to try this thing and decide if we like it but i can tell you the first couple of nights have been just a little bit rough and not as comfortable as what i'd like so hopefully this break-in period goes well and we don't have to return that thing and start over so at any rate bed shopping is something you should only do maybe every 10 years or so, and I'm hoping uh, that the, that I get 10 years out of the one we just bought. So we'll see. And finally, I want to jump into what I would say is the thought of the week, and I want to try to make this a regular segment on the intro of my shows. And the thought of the week for me this week is really integrity. And the reason I came to this idea is I had an experience during the week that was just a really good reminder. And if you're someone that acts with integrity, but then you expect that in return, you're probably going to be disappointed a lot of times. And that's just unfortunate. And I I hate to even phrase it that way. Uh, You're usually actually more surprised whenever you whenever you get someone that acts with integrity. And I think oftentimes you can look at something that appears to be great and then it all kind of comes crashing down when you see the wizard behind the curtain. And that was kind of the experience that I had this week. And I think it's okay if it's if it's a little bit disappointing, but you can't really let those things change who you are and what you believe in and let yourself sort of stoop to a level that is that is not one of integrity. And I know that's not always easy. Uh, but this is a thought that I learned from a, a person you may have heard of, Colin Coward. He's a sports uh, journalist, I guess you could say. He's uh, written some books. He's gained a lot of popularity over the airwaves over the years. But I, one of the things I've always liked about Colin is that he's really a straight shooter and it's funny I I certainly don't agree with everything that he says and he's really kind of provocative and um, kind of over the top sometimes but one of the things 
that he has always said that I've learned from is that he would say, don't ever try to be happier than happy. And I think that's where a lot of times you can get yourself into trouble and myself included in that. And I think sometimes what happens is you end up chasing these false idols or end up uh, chasing something that whenever you see the wizard behind the curtain, if you will, you end up disappointed or in a worse situation. So that's, that's kind of my thought for the week is integrity. When you're faced with a situation where the people around you maybe don't have it, hold on to yours for sure. And also don't try to be happier than happy. And I think that's always a good lesson to live by. Uh, and then finally, just one final thing. I'm coming off of watching the Super Bowl last evening, regardless of, of what your feelings are. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy this year around the NFL and the players and the kneeling for the flag and these sort of things. Uh, aside from all that, I thought the game was quite entertaining. I thought the performance of Nick Foles, the quarterback for the Eagles, was really inspiring. And this gets back to integrity again. Uh, this is a guy that was the backup. He'd lost his starting job to Carson Wentz, but when, when Wentz went down... Foles was ready when he was called upon. He didn't sit there and sulk and say, woe is me, I lost my job. He was a professional. He was ready. He got his opportunity and took advantage of it. And now, lo and behold, he became the MVP of the Super Bowl that the Philadelphia Eagles won last night. So, uh, you know, you got to keep your head up, folks. you got to keep looking forward and uh, not looking in your rearview mirror and not feeling sorry for yourself. And I thought that Foles in a sports setting was able to accomplished that in a pretty cool way and he's a, a person of, of great dignity and great faith and by all accounts a, a pretty good human being so I didn't really have a dog in the fight in terms of the Super Bowl but I felt good for him and uh, what he was able to accomplish there so just another another good lesson for sure. Uh, so with that speaking of good lessons I've learned a ton of good lessons hunting with my with my good long-term friend uh, longtime friend Mike Groman and let's go ahead and jump into this interview. We had a lot of fun with it. Mike's someone that I'm hoping to have on the show on the regular, and maybe at some point I can talk him into being my co-host. Uh, but we've had so many adventures over the years, many of them misadventures, and I wanted to get him onto the podcast early on in, in, in the life stage of this thing. So let's go ahead and jump to the interview with Mike. I am really excited to have my good friend Mike Groman on the show here today. And I wanted this to be my first interview for the podcast, but I ran into some technology challenges and this is, we're going to talk about the B team a little bit later, which is something that Mike and I are very much a part of. And I ran into some B team issues trying to figure out how to make a remote interview happen because I'm sitting in Columbus, Ohio, and Mike is sitting over in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and we needed to find a way to make this happen. So this goes back to my still learning how to handle the technology of a podcast, which is not a lot. It's really not a lot, but I think I, I'm figuring some things out and with, uh, with, some luck we'll be able to pull this off here today. So at any rate, I wanted Mike to be my first interview, and instead I ended up doing the remote interview at SHOT Show in the last episode, talking with Two Girls Hunting, which was a great interview in itself. So uh, with without uh, further ado, we'll go ahead and jump into the conversation here with Mike. And uh, Red Dog Road is, as you know, as you've heard me introduce the show, is about experiences in the outdoors. And Mike and I have just had a ton of them over the years, and most of them are just sort of these zany stories and goofy things. We're not going to try to cover them all today, but we're going to get into a few of them. We've had some successes over the years for sure, but most of our memories involve mishaps and other stupidity and dumb things that we've done over the years. And uh, so we're going to jump into it. And let's start off by learning a little bit about Mike. Mike, thanks for joining the show this morning. Oh, and, well, thank uh, you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, there's some somehow, some way we're probably going to mess this up. We'll just get that out there initially uh, so people know that. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and 
and also maybe get into a little bit about what the outdoors has meant to you in your life. Well, um, as you well know, I mean, um, I was born and raised in upstate New York, um, where Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River meet up in a town called Watertown. Uh, we moved to Pennsylvania uh, when I was 15 years old, and uh, eventually that's where you and I met because we went to the same high school together. I was a couple years older than you, and it's okay that I can say that. Um, You're still a couple years older than I, me, by I, the way. I always will be. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but we kind of um, met through a mutual friend, um, Bill Conrad, and um, you know, Bill, just like you and myself, we always had that real, real close attachment to the outdoors, uh, no matter what it was. I mean, we initially started to run around uh, to go trout fishing. And we had some really, uh, really fun times, you know, going ahead and, and uh, doing those types of things. But then um, we kind of reconnected. And I don't know if you recall this, but um, I was a bow hunter education instructor for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And I think you attended one of the classes. And that's where I think I ran back into you after losing touch for a couple years after you graduated high school and after I was gone, know, long gone and had a job. And um, we kind of reconnected that way. And uh, we've been running around ever since uh, on and off as obviously logistics allows. But uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, mean, I, I do remember that the, the bow hunter ed course. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, that's quite all right. But um, so I guess a little bit more about me. I mean, like I said, uh, once I moved down here to Pennsylvania, um, you know, went through college. I majored in uh, biology, went on to get um, my degree in physical therapy, got my first doctorate degree um, several years later, and I am almost halfway through my second doctorate, doctorate degree um, in curriculum and instruction as my career has taken me from the medical field as a physical therapist for almost 20 years, and now I'm actually uh, teaching physical therapy. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, you know, I have a great wife, uh, three great children. Uh, the funny thing is, is I have two, uh, like two girls and a boy, and both of my daughters are in college, and I'm in college. They finally they get a kick out of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're all in college together at 48 years old and 20 and. 19. At least you're not going to the same college, which I think would make it a little bit more interesting. Oh, I think they'd be mortified, you know, because <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know if, if you've ever seen that movie, 21 Jump Street, where these older cops go back to school and it's totally different than they remember it, you know, and everyone's wearing their backpacks on two shoulders and, and Channing Tatum says, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to one strap it, but I'd no strap it if I could. And the thing is, one strapping was cool back when we were in school, you know, and I go to college, I see all these kids and they, they have it on two straps. And I always think of that movie and I kind of chuckle, you know, like, wow, I am so far out of touch. It's not even funny. It's funny that you bring that up because the other day, as you know, I've got a 14 month old at home and we're out, out and about and I'm carrying one of the diaper bags, which is like a backpack and I'm one strapping it. And my wife informs me that that's no longer cool anymore, that you actually need to put the backpack <laughs> on your back. So I'm, I'm there. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Oh my! See, there you go, B team. That's that's yeah. a classic example of us. It's a. I'm glad you brought up your wife, of course, because if it wasn't for our wives and, and keeping us in line, who knows where we'd be at this point? But uh, but at any rate, yeah. And you mentioned your kids, which is which is great because I've had a chance to watch them grow up as well. And um, it, at least two of them are, are into hunting. Yes. Uh, but they're all such different personalities. Three different kids. Yeah, I mean, you got you got, you actually got a, a chance to really hunt 
and be around Aaliyah the most. You know, she's my she's my shooter. I mean, she used to shoot competitive pistol. We've kind of backed off on that now that she's in college. We have to prioritize her education. But um, she's hunted uh, with you a couple times, and uh, you know that's that's well, that meant a lot to me for you to actually kind of share that with my kids, and maybe someday I hope to be able to share that with you and Will. Yeah, that would be awesome. And I remember you bring up Aaliyah in particular. I remember one hunt where I think it was the opening day of firearm season in Pennsylvania. And, and she just sat there motionless like a statue for hours. And I kept thinking, man, I re- does this kid eat lunch or something? Because, you know, I'm kind of tired and I'd like to I'd like to have some lunch. And she just uh, really out hunted us all. But um, but no, that's been a great experience. And your background, you, you obviously have have uh, overachieved in life and I've underachieved. So I, I should have mentioned this is this is Dr. Mike Groman. Whenever I did the introduction and uh, two doctorate degrees, so good for you, man. I I don't know if I can stomach that much school, but I know you've been passionate about it and fighting through it. Yeah, I mean, it's. I will tell you, tell you this: the older you get, the harder it gets. But I mean, for me, I, I mean, I was not the the most. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully, my kids won't hear this. I wasn't the most attentive student in in elementary school, in high school, and even you know, when I first got to college, because for me, it was all about, I liked athletics. I liked the sports uh, component of that. And um, I didn't really place a lot of emphasis on education, even though my great grandfather, who was a really key person in my life, was a teacher. And he always wanted me to become a teacher, most importantly, history, because history always came very easily to me. He's like, oh, you should be a history teacher. And um, I'm like, no, 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 I like sciences, you know, because I've and that kind of ties into the outdoors for me. I always was fascinated by nature. You know, I could sit for hours. I mean, actually I'm sitting here right now looking out our back dining room window and it's, you know, beautiful coating of snow is coming down. We have a fire going. I mean, I just like that attachment or connection to the outdoors, but um, I never really was drawn to school. And uh, it wasn't until I finally found out what I wanted to be in regards to a, a physical therapist that I that I jumped in and you know I mean the the listeners wouldn't know this but you know how I am when I jump into something I mean I'm in 150 percent that's right and that's yeah. that's when I really buckled down and took my education seriously and truthfully my my wife laughs when I say this but I think that you know being 48 years old now and going through my second doctoral program. I don't think I could have done it if I, I, I said I had to save my brain for later in life. And it's kind of the way that I joke about it. And, um, but, uh, you know, I do appreciate education. I, I have been tried, you know, you, you, just like anything else. And you'll find out as you come up through with Will that you try and learn from your mistakes and pass it on to your children and hopefully help them either overcome those hurdles much easier than you did as a child or a young individual or work the, your whole way around them. But um, yeah, we really stress education with our kids and they do really well with that. And I'm very happy for that. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, you know, and that's actually a good transition point here because I wanted to talk about, you talk so much about the experiences and the just the, the things about the outdoors that have meant a lot to you. And so just in general, uh, we, the things that you remember most, I mean, to me, it's always been the experiences and you do remember whenever you, obviously, if you take an animal, you catch a fish or something like that. But just like you were talking about there, it's, it seems to be all those memories that you've made over the years through this connection with the outdoors. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, my, my great grandfather was the one that, that really kind of opened my eyes to the outdoors. I mean, he, he loved to hunt and fish and, um, he retired 
from teaching, and I spent a lot of uh, time with him over holidays and especially my almost my entire summer vacation for several years. Um, but he always had outdoor life, field and stream, sports of field magazines. You know, like he had a subscription to all three of those. And um, so, you know, initially, you know, when I was young, I just looked at the pictures and I was fascinated by the pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, then I began to read. And um, like I said, I wasn't the best student and um, I wasn't an, a tremendous reader. And, you know, he would encourage me to read by reading those magazines. And then, uh, I mean, the very first article that I remember reading cover to cover was about the Jordan Buck. Back in the 70s, they actually, Outdoor Life put a, a big spread together on the Jordan Buck. And that was the first, you know, other than one of those golden books about, you know, Miss Puppy went down to the creek to get a drink of water, you know, type of thing. Uh, but that was the <laughs> right. first thing that I actually read. And to this day, I can probably still give you those key points of that article from 1970, whatever it was. But... um but then to listen to him tell his stories, you know, because we would always sit and I was always intrigued by listening to his stories. And he was a really big pheasant hunter. He loved to hunt uh, ducks and he loved to fish. Those were his three big things. And I think the reason was is because deer up in that far, like northern New York, like we're talking, you know, like the Black River, Lake Ontario, St. Lawrence River. We didn't have a huge deer population back in the 70s there. I mean, to see a deer, boy, you'd, you'd stop the car. And look and just be amazed at oh my gosh there's a deer standing right in this field they were they were like this mystery you know like they were they were almost like a ghost where you heard stories about them but you know you'd occasionally cross a track and um but you just stare at it. it was like the craziest thing but he kind of wrapped me in this you know blanket of outdoors and hunting and and just to listen to how much he appreciated it and some of these really neat stories that he had that he shared with me um, really sparked my fire but for some strange reason it was the deer I mean you know that you know as well as I do I mean I, I got into training dogs you know and really liked that for bird hunting um, I like to fly fish we like to steelhead fish that kind of thing but but whitetail deer hunting to me by far and away always, was different than everything else. It had much more draw and appeal. And it wasn't until, again, I was with my great grandfather, you know, and I was, you know, gradually, I think I was up closer to high school age. And we were in our, like the little corner store on Sunday and he was getting his Sunday paper. And I looked and I saw Bowhunter magazine and it had this, and I can remember it had this huge, you know, 10 point, probably like now, like I'm calling it huge, but it's probably like 130 inch 10 point on the cover that this guy shot. And it had a beautiful fall scene. Like the leaves were yellow and orange behind this guy. And, you know, it just had that feel. And I turned to him, I said, pop, can we buy this? Can I, can I have this? And he said, sure. And I'm telling you what, I went through that magazine a hundred times, read every story four or five times. And that's where I kind of develop my my love and my recognition for bow hunting is going to be the thing that I want to I want to do and I want to do well. Yeah, I can relate so much to those stories. So I just I could sit here and listen to them all day and I remember looking at the old magazine. So I, I think that's perfect how you tell it and it it explains I think why you just became made up with it in your life and um it's really it's it's really how you and I connected all those years ago and speaking of those connections, let's go ahead and jump into a few of those and as I was okay. making the list this morning, first of all, I could have made a list of a hundred. 
but I wanted to start with a few, but I, I couldn't help myself. I just sort of kept laughing and chuckling as I was typing these things out. And, and to full disclosure to those listening, I, w- I would not tell Mike ahead of the show which ones we were going to talk about today. So he's going to be um, hopefully caught off guard a little bit so we get a real candid answer. But one of the first ones I want to talk about, you mentioned our friend Bill Conrad. Uh, Bill and I graduated high school together, so he also is a tad younger than Mike, but we connected and 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 did a lot of outdoors things together. But one trip in particular, it might have been the first one that we all kind of did together. And you and I ironically had talked about this a few days ago. And this is when we went, we went up to Red Bank Creek, which is in uh, Jefferson County, Pennsylvania, Brookville, Pennsylvania. Because when you when you trout fish in a lot of areas in Pennsylvania, well, yes, Pennsylvania is known for its excellent trout streams, a lot of those streams aren't natural reproduction streams. So they're stocked with trout by the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. And one of our traditions growing up was when you knew they were going to be stocking Red Bank Creek or Little Mahoning Creek, you sort of set your schedule accordingly and and went out and did some fishing. That's when it was going to be the best. And so they had just stocked Red Bank Creek and we decided to go on this epic journey up to Brookville, Pennsylvania. And so there we are, we're all loaded up in the vehicle. And I, I don't even remember who drove Mike. I know it wasn't Billy because he was such a tight ass, but. Uh, no, I, dr- I drove you okay. guys. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me. So we, we get up there, we're fishing. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is uh, how our friend Billy was so competitive and his tendency to maybe hold out on us if he had some good information. <laughs> Do you want to expand upon that a little bit? Well, to, to give everyone a better picture of Billy holding out is and, and most people have fished and you know as you as you come down you look at the the I mean I call it the anatomy of the stream you know where the eddy currents are where deep holes might be where little cuts are going to be in runs and where you think trout are going to hold up based on how much sunlight's hitting it versus shade and you start working down through and you you kind of attack these little spots here and there and you either have success or you don't and after and everyone has their own I call it, you know the limit of cast how many times you're going to engage that that structure you know to try and catch a fish and so and you know as nick can attest to this i'm not the most patient individual i like to see results rather quickly <laughs> so you know i'm i'm more of like a like a three forecast person i've never probably got to five or six unless you have a little bumper you roll a fish you know well nick and i are moving down at a pretty steady pace and and, and guys know when you're you're fishing with other guys <clears throat> there's the tendency to once someone anchors a spot even if you're not finished fishing out your spot, you might jump ahead of them to be the next one to get into that next bit of that next bit of structure to fish it first. Well, Nick and I are kind of playing this hippity hop game down the stream, <clears throat> and we look back and realize that Billy's not with us. And so we look up the stream, and there he is, <laughs> steadfast, just repetitively, you know, casting to this hole, casting to this hole, casting to this hole. And we both look at each other and, and say, you know, he's, he's got a fish in there that he wants to catch. You know, he, he knows it. And, and, and that's kind of how Billy was. He never – like we are like, you doing any good? And the answer was no, but yet he was still 80 yards up the stream steadfast fishing out this little hole. So uh, that's that's kind of what Nick was getting to in the point of Billy holding out on yeah, us. He did that to me many times. I, I remember I mean, he's the type that he would, if, if you'd lost your bait on a fish, he'd jump in right next to you with a baited hook and yank it out right in front of you and just look at you and laugh, you know, and get a kick out of it. And uh, so again, like we, we couldn't begin to tell you how many fish we actually caught that day, but that experience was just so outstanding. And, and that's what it was all about. Now, in the, in the end of that trip, and you'll recall this, and I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to get into the gory details, 
miles, but we had a little stop at uh, Pizza Hut in Punxsutawney, I think it was, on the way home. It was, yes. And uh, let's just say that we had Mike laughing so hard, he was just about shooting pizza out his nose that day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. But I mean, but truthfully, I mean, if you think about that trip, I mean, the things that anchor in my mind was was the church parking lot where we parked at. I mean, I remember that spot. Yep. And that's the the way that I drive back and forth to our place up in New York. And every time I drive past there, because you can see that hole that Billy was fishing from the road, I think about you guys every single time I drive past that spot. And I go to our place in New York almost every other week. You know, so I mean, it's just, it, it keeps it so fresh in my head. And it still makes me smile every time. And then... um like you mentioned when we were, you know, just telling, just telling stories about school because they, they were, um, they, I think you just graduated then, or you might've been seniors that we year. We were young for sure. Um, yeah. Cause I, that's, I think why I drove cause I was up in my twenties. But, um, when you guys were telling me that story about something that happened with Bill in school and we were laughing so hard and, and Bill, I mean, you said about pizza flying out of my nose, Billy almost choked. He actually had to stand <laughs> up away from the table and turn away because he almost had you know, he almost choked on pizza because we were laughing so hard. But those are the three, that church, that parking lot, that hole where Billy was fishing, and then that pizza hut. I mean, that whole trip, I couldn't tell you anything else about that trip. I couldn't tell you what I was wearing. Um, I do remember it was overcast, but those those three things, the church, Billy's hole, and then the pizza hut afterwards. Yeah, what a, what a great day. And I'm, I'm sitting here recalling the whole thing in my mind like it was yesterday. Well, let's jump to something else because you said something in the last story that caught my attention. And that is um, you're not as patient probably as what I would be when it comes to hunting. You're you're more technical than I am. Uh, you pay attention to every detail. And I'm, I'm sure I'm thinking of times over the years where I frustrated you because I didn't pay attention to the details as well. And we just have a, we have, as much as we've hunted together, we still have a slightly different approach at times. And I'm going to go back to, you had mentioned that you grew up hunting a lot of things where I did it. I did as well. I mean, I certainly remember chasing grouse around where I grew up. There were a lot of those around it. And this is Red Dog Road, right? So I've, I chased a lot of small game around Red Dog Road in that area. But one thing I never really got into was turkey hunting. But this is something that you were well out ahead of me on and you had been turkey hunting and had some success. So um, just in general, Mike, I, I credit you with the person that really taught me how to turkey hunt. Um, how would you gauge your frustration level with taking me out there and all the different mishaps that happened over the years when you're trying to teach me how to hunt turkey? Well, the thing is, it wasn't really frustration with you. It was just how frustrating turkey hunting can be and i think that's why i still put so much effort and time into deer hunting and turkey hunting is because those are the two things in life that i just have never perfected and um that frustrates the heck out of me you know but i'm glad it does and that i haven't perfected it because i'd probably stop doing it and uh but with turkeys what Puts, at least in my opinion, what puts you at such a large advantage is knowing the terrain almost as well as the turkeys do. And a lot of times, because you know as well as I do, I mean, I've never owned land up until recently, but in Pennsylvania, I, I cut my teeth, I made my living, if you will, on the state game lands. Or if I had, you know, occasional access to private land, which was rare and few and far between. But um, when we would go hunting, in my mind, based on the reaction of the turkeys, how I felt them, you know, how I felt them kind of reacting, responding to our calls, I would turn to whoever I was hunting with. And like in this situation it was you. And I said, 
where do you think they're going? Because I mean, I didn't know the terrain. And it wasn't that I was frustrated with you. I was frustrated in the sense that I didn't know the terrain and how they'd want to work. And, you know, we actually, I think, even have this on video from when we were filming, but where we actually had, and we were hunting with a, a friend of mine that I introduced you to, Chris Sansom. Um, and we had what we believe was probably one of the biggest gobblers because when we finally did get a glimpse of him and I caught a quick glimpse of him on the on the video camera, one of the biggest gobblers we have ever encountered and had the pleasure to work was on your property in, in Clarksburg. And we're trying to – we're like, he's working. He's going to come. We're looking to you and, and to try and give us information. Where is do you think he's going to come up over? And we all put our eggs into this one basket and we placed you for the shot. And darn it, if he didn't show up where you did not have access to moving because he, he was coming up over this rise and this ridge. And that is the frustrating part of turkey hunting to me. It's not that I get frustrated with the people I'm around. I just get frustrated with the sense that we're engaged here. We could make this work. But if you don't have either a certain shred of luck or a very intimate knowledge about the terrain, you'll more often lose than you win. And that's why you, I think you had so much luck in Clarksburg once we kind of kicked your turkey hunting career off is because you knew that ground so intimately that you could play the game with them at their level and you'd win more than you'd lose. Yeah. I mean, it was, I want to do a separate show with you a little bit closer to turkey season. We get into the details of some of the hunts that we had that were frustrating. And the the one, I remember the one in particular where I actually had some luck calling the bird from, it seems like a mile away only to blow the shot. And uh, a couple of shots, the whole thing was just a mess, frankly. And I remember just telling my wife, I was just embarrassed. <laughs> I said, Mike is, takes this so seriously and he gets up so early and comes out here, we're trying to do this and I continue to fail and I just feel like an idiot. So uh, I want to do a whole show on, on turkey hunting mishaps for sure. And then uh, just a couple more quickly on this one. I, I, for whatever reason, this this silly thing sticks out in my mind, but we had done a couple trips to Illinois to hunt deer together. And I remember specifically, I can't tell you anything from the hunt itself because I don't remember, but we were driving home. We were trying to get a head start on driving home. I think it was about 11 hour drive. But we knew we were going to stop somewhere. So we end up at some exit somewhere. I think we were outside of Champaign, Illinois, and just randomly pick a hotel. And we get, we get into this hotel and it's kind of a dive. And I remember you tearing the bed apart when we got into the room, like just looking for anything that might be crawling or – do you remember that night? Oh, I do because uh, I think – what it was is, and you know, I'm I'm not really proud to say this, and I like I said, I hope to God my kids don't listen to this, but you guys kept calling me because I was all over there. I was falling asleep, you know, I was the last car, and you guys would see my headlights kind of drift off the road and then come back on and then drift into the passing lane and then shift right back. I mean, I was just exhausted, and um, you guys kept calling me, "Hey, are you awake?" I'm like, "I am now," <laughs> you know. But uh, eventually, we got to a point where we realized we we realized it wasn't safe to keep pushing. And uh, we stopped in that dive and, oh my God, I mean, I, I've seen, you know, nasty runoff farm ponds that were cleaner than that toilet and that shower and that bathroom. I mean, my word. Yeah, that was, oh, that, for whatever reason, that one stands out. We could do another whole show just talking about our Illinois trips and uh, some of the things with our other buddy, Brian Burns, and the things that he pulled over the years out there. But um, let me jump to this though. And I want, I want to finish this in terms of our stories. And that is... So we had this special place on the property that I used to own in Clarksburg that we called the Killing Tree. 
And the reason we called it the killing tree is because I always looked at that one spot as really being ground zero for deer activity on that property. I, I just knew that if you sat there consistently, you were going to have consistently good results. It was just a great spot with the exception of the tree that we would use to climb just did not provide a lot of cover. So you had to watch every, every little motion in that, in that tree. But, but a lot of stuff, as I was thinking back, Mike, happened to us out of that stinking killing tree. And these were just a few that I was thinking of. So we had... The late season mishap on the on a wide eight point deer, uh, mm-hmm. where I was hunting and, and you were filming. And if you remember, we we had the uh, we had a little decoy out there, a little Montana decoy, and this we knew this buck was out there. And it, and it's and we finally an opportunity in the late season is not always easy, but we had that eight pointer come in, and I ended up not getting the shot, and we blew that one. Yep. Uh, then there was the the uh, if you remember this one, you and I sat out there in freezing rain. It was supposed to be snow. But instead, it never really turned to snow. And we're trying to fill one of my doe tags. And in the meantime, my bow is getting crusted with ice and everything else. I'm not really paying attention. I finally get a shot at a deer and I miss way under it uh, because I, don't, I just think my bowstring was covered. in. in so I remember you sitting out there slugging it away, trying to get this on video. And again, I, I didn't come through. And then there was the time I shot the wrong deer when you were filming another deer. Yep, I remember that one. Got the deer, got the wrong one, and then there was the time where you were in the hot seat shooting, and we sat there all day, daylight till dark, and you grazed that. Yeah, you grazed that shooter buck's back that we saw in the morning, and my video was awful. Like I barely got it in film, and then when the deer took (laughs) off, I was filming at top of the tree. Just those four (laughs) stories. What are your memories of the killing tree and some of those stories? Um. I mean, I remember every every single one of those. But the thing is, every single time. I mean, and everyone's listening to this and going, boy, these two guys are clowns, you know, and technically, yes, we are. <laughs> um, but every single time we had one of those mishaps, I never looked back on one of those hunts and, and was upset, you know, I mean, well, except for when I shot over that buck's back. I mean, that was, that one bothered the heck out of me. But then I came back the next day and redeemed myself. So I was pretty happy about that. But, um, but yeah, every single one of those, I mean, when you shot that doe, I mean, uh, and we were just, you know, just that was when we first started filming together and we weren't communicating very well. And I asked him like, are you on the big one? Yes. I said, okay, good. So I'm, I'm filming the doe that I thought when you said I'm on, the, I'm going to shoot the big one. I thought that was the big one. So I'm filming that you were looking at another deer. The, the bow goes off, the deer runs off scot-free. I never even see the arrow. And then all of a sudden you said, I got it. <laughs> I pan the camera over and there's a deer laying on the ground. <laughs> I thought, oh my, this is not good. But every single one of those hunts that, you know, if someone was listening, would think was a total mishap or failure. We never left the woods upset at each other, upset at the situation. It was just like, oh, well, you know, it happens. And and I think that was one of the things why I, I think you and I get along so well is because we really don't live and die by our success. We kind of live and die by, you know, we had a chance, we gave it our best and we weren't up for the task that day. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll work harder to be up to the task next time. Yeah. And we learned so many lessons just in that one stinking tree, I think over the years. And we've been talking about producing a video throughout this. And I'm sure people listening have caught it. And I want to jump to that a second, because I think uh, several years ago, you were, you had this, this dream, this idea, you wanted to produce your own video. And you worked so hard at it and you brought me into the mix and said, you know, the more of us that are involved in this, the more material I'll be able to get and the sooner I'll be able to produce this thing. Little did you know what you were asking for at that time. 
uh, because I'm sure I probably held it up at least a year myself. But um, at any rate, um, talk a little bit about you fulfilling that that dream of producing your own hunting video. And we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to try to make this available for listeners at some point here. We'll figure that out. But um, just a little bit about the project and the, the what, the what the real value was. Was it in the memories? Was it the final product? Um, tell us about the video. Well, um, you know, years ago, I mean, I have always been intrigued. I'm a, I'm a visual learner by nature. I mean, if I see something, I should be able to pull it off. So I learned a lot of my hunting techniques from watching you know, old VHS tapes, and then they turned into DVDs and things like that. But like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm a really observant individual. And some of the things that I was seeing in the woods, I never could find on video. I never heard anybody talking about. And on the other hand, I'd come home and tell my wife these stories and she would kind of, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. And, I'm not, and I, I didn't feel like she was dismissing me, but I couldn't, I didn't feel like she could appreciate what it, I was really experiencing out there. So I started bringing out, you know, your old portable home movie camera. And then it eventually got to where I decided, you know, I'm going to do this because I mentioned earlier, I mean, I've always wanted to own my own piece of ground. And that was my thought. If I could create a DVD series that hunters would want to watch and enjoy, I might be able to get enough to make a down payment on a piece of property, and get my own piece of ground. And that was the the driving force behind that. But then as we went through the process, um, again, it, it was problematic. I mean, we were trying to work. I mean, we had a very high-end camera, very high-end uh, sound system, but it was just one camera. And um, Nick can attest to this. How many times, because I would always take two weeks off pre-rut every year, and I'd take one week off to hunt with Nick and film him. I'd take another week off to hunt with my buddy Chris and film him. And then if either one of them got their deer, they would um, be able to film me. And so what that meant was... I was really pulling for these guys because it would benefit me, but um, I don't know how many times I would hunt with you that that first week, that, like that week of Halloween, and we would not see anything. And then I'd be up in Clearfield County with Chris, and I'd get the the, the phone call. You know, I could feel my phone vibrate. Bzz, just shot crab claw. Bzz. I mean, there was three times <laughs> that I hunted with you for an entire week, and within two days like you know we would kind of take a break on sunday because we're not allowed to hunt in pennsylvania on sunday by monday or tuesday i knew that phone would buzz bzz, got one and i'm and it was just so fr- that was really frustrating for me but uh long story short we all got that we got it put together and i do i like i've told you a thousand times thank you because there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into that and um took us six years but um on the backside of this to not discuss my finances, but you know, roughly give or take, we, we probably put, a, um, you know, long, um, uh, almost $20,000 is what came out of my bank account to put this DVD together. And when we finally closed down the account, I had enough money after, you know, my accountant looked at everything to buy an extension ladder. <laughs> and that's, that, that's, that's pretty much what I made on that on that DVD. Or actually, I'm sorry. That's the only physical reward, other than you know having the DVD and, the, and all the memories that we have. But um, so I mean, you kind of look at it, was that a failure? And and financially, was it a failure? Sure. Yeah, it was. A, it was a huge failure. I mean, not having a business degree and things like that. I didn't have any sponsors. And tr- to be honest with you, I didn't really want any for this first DVD. I wanted to come and be able to show them a product that I was very proud of to determine if they felt I was worthy to you know, promote their product and things like that. But it still gave me 100% control of the decisions for the, the DVD itself. And uh, took us a lot longer. 
uh, but I was very proud with the product uh, when I was finished with it. Um, you know, I kind of did the the sports show circuit and sold them, you know, face to face. I sold them over the internet, and the the feedback I got was tremendous. I mean, guys really liked to see some of the the information we were bringing forward that I uh, observed when I was in the woods, and I was able to then reproduce on film some of the techniques, especially with decoys. But what they really appreciated was when we didn't succeed. And I went back and showed them and broke down, at least from my determination, why we didn't we didn't succeed. And guys really, really gravitated to that, the honesty that we kind of portrayed and uh, the fact that, hey, we, you know, kind of like I told you with my kids, hey, we boogered it up. Here's how hopefully you will not. And so, I mean, uh, very proud of the product that we put together, even though financially it wasn't what I initially set out to achieve with it. Yeah. And I think that's a good, uh, like you said, we got so many memories out of that and I'm not sure, um, you know, the, the financial burden certainly is, is one thing, but we did get a ton of memories out of that. And it's something we're going to always be able to talk about. And hopefully I can uh, find a way to get the video or at least portions of it up for people to be able to, to see and check out. But it turned out, it turned out really, really well. And that's one of the things I think we were all proud of at the end was that this was very authentic. It wasn't what you see so much nowadays where it's so sponsor driven and these guys go out. Mike said it took six years to produce this one video. And a lot of pros, if you will, out there go out and they, they have to produce a, a full season's worth of videos in one season correct? Yes. so that they can show it the following season. And, and I just, I know, I know a lot of those people just through my own career. And I can tell you that a lot of them feel a lot of pressure all the time to do that. And uh, I think we, we certainly felt some pressure to ultimately have the video produced, but at the same time, it was a, a ton of fun. And um, I'm, I'm just, I'm glad that I was able to be a part of that. Oh, it was. It was. It was such a great experience, and and such a a very memorable time of my life, you know. And I'm and I'm really glad that I did it. Like you said, I mean, um, I've kept a few copies for myself in case I ever have grandchildren. I want to. Hey, here's what your you know your crazy old grandfather did. But um, it, it's it's really really um an accomplishment. I mean, you have no idea to be able to go out and I give like even though you said these guys feel that pressure, I give them a lot of credit. I mean, you know, granted we weren't going from outfitter to outfitter to outfitter and things like that. And that's kind of what they have to do. And I do appreciate that. We were actually trying to do it on, you know, your property in Clarksburg, Chris's property up in uh, Clearfield. And then um, we hunted a couple of times on open ground uh, with Aaliyah and to film and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it was, it was really, really, and then we, uh, it was really hard. It was really something that you have no idea the grind and the organization and, and the time that it takes and so I give the the guys that do that and make a living with that a lot of credit because it is not as glamorous as you might think it would be. No, definitely not. And I tell a lot of people that who ask me, hey, how do I get into the outdoor industry? And to them, they they mean, how do I get on hunting television? <laughs> I always tell them, be careful what you wish for. But uh, at any rate, uh, great project. And we'll try to get that uh, uploaded somewhere on the site so people can see parts of it. But uh, with that, Mike, I... I want to stop the show there. I'm, I'm hoping to have you as a, re, a recurring guest or maybe someday I can talk you into being a co-host here because um, we've just had so much fun with this over the years and could talk about it forever. But again, this is a guy that's <laughs> finishing his second doctorate right now. So he doesn't have a ton of extra time uh, at this point in time, but we'll get there. And uh, let's let's make sure to try to do some turkey hunting together this spring if we can. Uh, we don't live that far apart where we can't make that happen for sure. And That'd uh, be great. Yeah, we got to do that. So 
appreciate you coming on, man. And um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me. All right, Mike. I always enjoy catching up with Mike. And since I left Pennsylvania, it hasn't always been that easy. Uh, But we still talk on the phone almost weekly. And it's not always just about hunting. That's for sure. We help each other out in a variety of different ways. And it's just been a great friendship. And I think you could hear just sort of the excitement and passion in our voices as we were recounting some of those stories. So uh, it was a lot of fun. One story we didn't talk about, though, that I, I wanted to bring up. It was our first year that I moved to North Dakota from Pennsylvania. Now, I'd lived in Pennsylvania for 38 years before the move. So this was a big change. And it was the first year that Mike and I didn't really get a chance to hunt much together. And I remember I was out there. I don't remember the date exactly. I'm going to say it was probably November 8th or 9th, something like that. And I'm sitting in a tree stand in North Dakota and I get a text from Mike who was hunting my property in Pennsylvania. And he texted me that he had shot a a deer that he had been after and was seeing. And of course I'm congratulating him. And that kept me up in the stand, I think a little bit longer than I was planning. And it wasn't all that long after that, I ended up shooting a really good deer in North Dakota. So we ended up killing two deer on the same day, just a couple hours apart, but yet we were worlds apart on the map, which was really a cool thing. And we still talk about that. And Mike mounted that deer for me, did a beautiful job. It's the best piece of uh, taxidermy I think I have uh, on that deer. So um, at any rate, I also have a link posted on the Red Dog Red website where you can see the video that we talked about, Wow, Whitetails Volume 1, No Time to Waste. Uh, the video quality isn't as great as we'd like. We had some translation issues getting that thing uploaded, but I think it's still something you'll enjoy. It's, it's actually not too bad, but it was a, again, it was a project that took six years to complete and, uh, but it turned out pretty well. And it's, if you're looking for a monster bucks or something like that, you're not going to find it, but I think you're going to see some good genuine hunting and just a great time. We really enjoyed doing that. And it's brought back some memories for me. Uh, so with that, Uh, The week ahead, coming up, I will be heading to Salt Lake City and the Western Hunt Expo. That'll be toward the end of the week. That is one of my favorite shows as an Easterner. I grew up in the East, live in the Midwest now, uh, that likes to hunt out West. It's just a different ball game, and I get a chance to be around the people and the products that are really designed for hunting those Western environments. Um, I also get a chance to present to about 1,500 people on Thursday night at the Welcome Night. I've done that the last few years. Looking forward to doing that again. Although, sadly, my focus is going to be a little bit more on chronic wasting disease in the talk. But I think I'll find a way to to spin that forward and make it um, make sure people are aware, but also not scare the heck out of them at the same time. So I'll be doing that. Uh, this week. So it's a big week ahead, a little more travel. And I just want to thank you again for listening. I want you to please tell your friends. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on the Red Dog Road website at reddogroad.net or through iTunes or Stitcher. That way you get notified each time a new show is posted. And again, if you have ideas for a show, ideas for guests, please send them my way. Hopefully when I'm out in Salt Lake City this week, I can find a guest or two and do do an interview out there. So with that... Again, I thank you for listening, and I hope you all have a great week, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. If you like what you heard here, please consider subscribing and telling your friends. You can also visit the website and blog at reddogroad.net.